Thank you, Sarah. You can follow along in um, your Bibles or uh, the screen behind us. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter um, 2, verses 11 to 12, and then also uh, chapter 3 later on. So I'll invite Sarah. Thank you. So starting in chapter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then chapter 3 from verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Uh, Great to be with you again today. And uh, Sue and I have really enjoyed being able to spend these few weeks uh, with you as we've uh, worked our way through this part of uh, Peter's letter. Uh, if I can just say that uh, you'll see in the leaflet there's the opportunity to put in questions if you want. So there's a, uh, a text message you can send through if you have any. And at the end of this time or after we have a break, uh, Joe will get me and also Sue back up uh, or me back up, Sue up, so that we can do Q&A together, which seems really appropriate as we wrestle with a passage that raises some uh, interesting questions when it comes to, uh, to marriage. So as we uh, kick off, let me pray, and then we'll look at it together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your uh, wonderful mercy and kindness towards us in your Son. And Father, we ask that as we wrestle with a, a challenging part of your word, uh, you will give us uh, clarity, uh, insight, and actually that desire to understand your mind and your purposes for us in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1950s, uh, the Housekeeping Monthly was a magazine that was published in the United States. Uh, In 1955, there was an article published and it was called The Good Wife's Guide, right? The Good Wife's Guide. It had a list of suggestions for wives of the 1950s in America that they should keep in mind when their husbands were coming home from work, okay? Things like this. Be a little gay, and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may need a lift, and one of your duties is to provide it. Or this one, uh, listen to him. You may have a dozen important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. Okay? Uh, Or this one, make the evening his. Never complain if he comes home late or goes out to dinner or some other place of entertainment without you. 
Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his very real need to be at home and relax. And the article is full of other gems just like these. It's uh, just that sort of article. And what you get is this, this window into another era, which is so foreign to our own egalitarian 21st century culture. There's a vast gulf, isn't there? And maybe as you heard 1 Peter 3, chapter verse 1 read, uh, you felt exactly the same way. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husband. And you hear it, and maybe for, that, for you that evokes incredibly strong feelings. Uh, you find it demeaning or uh, misogynistic or repressive or primitive or patronising or patriarchal or condescending and uh, maybe even dangerous as you hear, hear it read. And what you know is that it cuts across everything you know and feel about human dignity. Maybe that's your reaction to it, your understanding of equality. And maybe what you're feeling is that if the Bible advocates this sort of thinking, then it has exactly the same instructive value as the housekeeping monthly. So let me up front say what this passage and what the the Bible generally is not saying, okay? What the Bible is not saying. It is not saying husbands or men are superior beings with more intelligence and gifts. It is not saying men are more important to God. You actually pick that up even from this passage, uh, verse 7 of 1 Peter 3. Uh, notice how it talks about women and men being co-heirs of the gracious gift of, gift of life. That is, they're equal in God's sight. Nor is this passage or the New Testament generally saying, husbands, crush your wives or control them. In fact, as you work through this passage, these verses speak against any disrespect or abuse of women and speaks against it in the strongest possible terms. Okay, we'll come back to that in just a few moments. However, having said those things, let me also just put in a qualifier. These instructions around submission are not just socially or culturally conditioned. In other words, what I'm saying is that they they were relevant for the first century, but they are also relevant for our day and age today. And you can pick that up even from the context of this letter of 1 Peter. Uh, Submission runs through the whole section. We've looked at it over the last few weeks. Submission in relation to governing authorities. Submission by slaves in relation to masters. And even you get Jesus' own submission to the will of his heavenly Father. Now, submission is not a dirty word, okay, when we think about what the, the Bible is teaching. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it actually uses the same sort of language and categories when it talks about marriage. Uh, so Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 2, all speak about the nature of husband-wife relationships and all talk around this area of submission or respect is uh, the way in which it's often referred to. Having said that, though, uh, can I just say as clearly as I possibly can, 1 Peter 3 
is not primarily about mar marriage. Right? Marriage is just an illustration of a bigger point that's being made throughout this section. Okay? So, point two in your outline, what, what is the main point? What's the big point that's being emphasised? We go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 that we just had read. And followers of Jesus are called by God to serve him in the world. They are to, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans or unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This, this principle is then applied to a few situations. Christians with unbelieving ruling authorities, uh, Christian slaves and their unbelieving masters, and now we come to Christian wives with their unbelieving husbands. Right? That's the focus of this section. You can pick it up in chapter 3, verse 1. Now it says, his wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. In the uh, Roman Empire of the first century, uh, the cultural norm was for a wife to take up the religion of her husband. What we have here uh, wives who have not done this. Now understand as clearly as you possibly can, these are gutsy women. Right? They are holding on to the word of life in the face of a family context where they're under pressure to adopt an alternative view. And it would have been a threatening situation to be in. I suspect it was threatening for the women involved uh, made them more precarious, but also threatening in terms of the family relationships and the instability that that could bring. And let me say that I think that's always the case. When someone in a, an established household becomes a believer, it really creates a level of unsettledness. I, I became a Christian when I was about 20 years of age on campus, and I remember about, it's probably about a month later, my parents sitting me down they were deeply disturbed at how I'd become religious. And they went through a whole litany of ways in which my life had changed for the worse. And one of those was the fact that I didn't even go out and get drunk with my mates anymore, right? I thought, I would have thought that was a good thing, you know? And yet from their perspective, it was just another marker of instability and the destabilising of relationships. I think it's the same here. A married woman who converted to Christianity could be seen as a very destabilising influence in her household and even disrespectful of her husband who believed other things, another religion. So how does a wife in that situation, how do they commend Jesus to their husband? And let me say, though, I think the principles we're about to look at, they apply in all relationships, actually, not just to marriage. But uh, the focus here is, is on marriage. So how? And, and essentially what you get is the, the clear statement about the impact of doing good, living a godly life. So we have the example of Jesus. Um, notice how the instructions to wives and husbands in this section start with the same words. Now, verse 1, wives in the same way. 
Verse 7, husbands, in the same way. Uh, so you think, well, the same way as, as what? As who? And, of course, we're, we're going back to the immediate context in chapter 2, which talks about Jesus, verses 21 to 25. Jesus is the example for us to follow. He submits to his heavenly Father. Uh, he does that by suffering, being unjustly killed on a cross for our sins. Notice that Jesus is equal with the Father. He does not lose equality or dignity by submitting to his Father's will. There's no loss at that point in terms of status. And I want to say it's exactly the same with husbands and wives. There, there is never for husbands or wives any loss of identity or value or dignity by submitting to the will of God. Right? Nothing in that way at all. The example of Jesus. Then it emphasises actions over words. Look again at uh, verse 1. Speaking of uh, unbelieving husbands, notice what it says. If any of them don't believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. So can a husband or anyone become a Christian without hearing the word or the gospel? Can anyone get converted by someone else's behaviour? Because the simple answer is, is no. But go back to verse 1 again. Notice what it says, if the husband does not believe the word. Now, literally, it's actually disobeys the word. Right? It's been softened for us here. What we've got is a context where this husband has rejected the gospel and the wives are encouraged that less talk and more action is the smart way to help him rethink his rejection of the gospel at this point. And, and again, I want to say that is, I think, really good advice for any close relationship. Okay, so what does submission look like here? What I want to say is that we need to be careful not to feel uh, this with our own ideas or preferences or culture. At this point, 1 Peter chapter 3 has more in common with feminism than it does with patriarchal ideas. Okay, now I didn't just misspeak. Right? The Bible at this point has more to do, more in common with feminism than it does with patriarchal thinking. Feminists, I think, rightly speak against the way in which women are objectified or commodified or valued because of their bodies. The Bible says it is wrong to treat anyone like they're a lump of meat. Right? The Bible is very clear on that. Notice what God values Verses 2 to 4, what we have here is the contrast between inner beauty or character and external looks. Uh, the world values uh, looks and power and wealth, but God values, verse 4, the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Then in verses 5 and 6, what we have is... Uh, uh, the advocating of role models in the Old Testament who put their hope in God and not men. Character lasts for eternity, but bodies and skin-deep beauty, not so much. 
That's why you don't have any 86-year-old supermodels strutting catwalks, okay? That's exactly the point being made here. But let me come back to that because there are lots of triggers in this passage that I think cause us to go, whoa, you know, what's that saying, okay? So um, verse 4, for example, what is this gentle and quiet spirit that wives are meant to display? Is it saying uh, women should be seen and not heard or maybe saying women should not be seen and not heard? Um, but that, that would be very strange given that what we have here is a slamming of the elevation of external beauty over in, internal character. So it, it would be really odd if what it was saying was maintain an external veneer of godliness and gentleness when you're out in public. Right? That, that, that would be something uh, Islam would promote, but Christianity does not promote that at all. So what's this gentle and quiet spirit? Literally, again, it actually is talking about the, the hidden person of the heart, right? the hidden person of the heart. The focus is not on external grooming, hair or clothes, but the grooming of the heart, the, the inner person. See, unbelieving husbands, they may behave badly. They, they may mock or ridicule their believing wives. They may put them under pressure uh, to convert to something else. But believing wives that have a strength of character, that means their undeserving husbands are served in the same way in which Christ served them that is, by dying on a cross when they didn't deserve it. Do you understand the the quality being advocated here by believing wives towards unbelieving husbands is the same quality God demonstrated to us? Grace, 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 grace. And what's a husband called to do? You get to verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, that is, again, like Jesus, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And again, lots of trigger words in this, aren't there? So you get this uh, phrase, weaker partner. What are we talking about? It, it's possible it's talking about the weakness uh, at law of a wife in this first century Roman context. But I think it's more likely a comment about physical vulnerability. Uh, We know the the stats in our own society on domestic violence. It's perpetrated not, not exclusively, but dominantly by men. And men are, on average, uh, physically stronger than women are. Here, what we're being told is husbands are being encouraged not to use their physicality to manipulate or coerce or control their wives or force them into doing something that the husbands want them to do. Now, can I just say in the clearest possible terms, there is no place for domestic abuse or violence in any marriage yet alone a Christian marriage. No place at all. I want to tell you that God abhors that sort of behaviour. 
And that's even clear in this particular text. Notice how seriously God takes it. Verse 7, not only would a husband committing domestic violence destroy his relationship with his wife, he also destroys his relationship with God. It says, behave this way so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Do you understand? If a husband doesn't do these things, respect and love his wife, God will not listen to him. God does not listen to a man who abuses or mistreats his wife. He destroys his relationship with God. Husbands are called upon by God to respect and love and honour their wives. Now, can I just say, if, uh, if there are any people here who are in an abusive relationship, uh, then I want to tell you clearly where we stand as a church on this sort of issue. Let me take you back to um, verse 16 of chapter 2. Notice what it says there. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Friends, as a church community, we expose domestic violence. We expose abuse. We do not cover it up. That's exactly where we're coming from. If you are in a situation of domestic abuse or violence, then can I encourage you, speak to Cam, speak to Joe, speak to some other leader that you trust, uh, seek out a trusted uh, person that you can confide in about these things, get the support you need uh, so that you can deal with this situation. Let me also make it really clear. Submission does not mean that you should allow someone to sin against you in this way. And often I think in a domestic violence setting, uh, there's a necessity, at least for a period, to separate so that space can be created for repentance and uh, counselling and support uh, just so, yeah, to work through the situation. If any more questions about that, please do uh, grab me afterwards, talk to someone you know, someone you trust. Do not live in that sort of context without dealing with it openly. Let me just turn to some thoughts on how to apply this. Um, Not that we haven't been doing that already, but let me just try and uh, run this, this through a few different lenses as we press on. First of all, let me give a, a word uh, for the marrieds who are here. You hit 1 Peter 3 verse 1, and uh, given our culture, I think it's very hard not to just dismiss it. You know, wives, submit. Uh, can I just say that this is only a small part of what the Bible teaches on marriage? God's intention for marriage is that uh, a man and a woman form a partnership in marriage where there is deep love and respect and affection for one another. The big idea that God has for marriage is unity and harmony. So what I want to do is make a comment and then a suggestion to marriage, okay? A comment, then a suggestion. 
I think sometimes uh, Christians can communicate that submission equals husbands making decisions in marriage and wives complying. Uh, Can I just say that is definitely not the way a healthy marriage works. That is not the way it works. Uh, Sue and I, I don't want to hold this up as a model of this, I just want to use it as an example. So we've been married now for over uh, 40 years. We come to lots of decisions as a couple without any reference to each other at all. Lots of decisions. And it's not because we're fiercely independent and just like to do our own thing. It's just that actually we've worked out what either of us would think about certain situations and we just do it. Like why waste time on stuff that we already know the answer and you're already in sync over something. And I think the bulk of our decision-making these days lines up in that direction. That's one of the benefits of being married for 40 years and keeping your eyes and your ears open for a bit of time. You know, like That's just the way in which it should work. Some decisions, though, we agonise over. Uh, we talk, we pray, we discuss, we debate. Um, I will push, Sue will push back. Uh, Sue will push, I will push back. Uh, it's healthy, it's respectful, and it's nutting out situations of importance as we work forward together. Can I say, as, as a husband, I would be a moron not to listen to Sue, who is godly, wise, intelligent, and has gifts and abilities that I just do not possess. Right? I'd be a fool uh, not to... Uh, trust her and have that engagement with one another. Now, let me say, I'm not saying my marriage is a a paradigm and I'm not saying uh, Sue and I have got it worked out. We'll be working this out until we die, right? That's just just the way it goes. Uh, But marriage is fundamentally marked by healthy partnership, okay? That's the comment. Let me now make a suggestion uh, for husbands and wives The suggestion is marriage involves love and respect, okay? Uh, A couple of years ago, I was sitting down with a couple who were experiencing significant marriage difficulties, and there was one sentence that the wife spoke that really just kept echoing in my brain afterwards. She said, I don't think he, her husband, I don't think he cherishes me. Interesting word to use, actually. The old marriage service uh, used that word cherish as part of the vows. And it just means to hold in high esteem. It's interesting um, uh, for the husbands in this passage in chapter 3. Notice in verse 7 it talks about respecting uh, their wives The word used there, if you went back to chapter 2, verse 7, is the same word, and it's precious. Isn't that interesting? And and I think that's the idea here. That is, husbands are to treat their wives as precious, as of extraordinary value, and therefore to cherish appropriately. So here's my suggestion for husbands. 
at some stage where you feel you can have this conversation, I'm not thinking straight after I finish preaching, but uh, at some stage, husbands, I'd love you to ask your wives, do you feel like I cherish you? Do you feel cherished by me? Do you feel like I treat you as precious? Okay? So if you've got courage, men, ask your wives that question. And here's the uh, suggestion for wives uh, to ask your husbands. Do you feel respected by me? Have a go. Do you feel cherished? Do you feel respected? Okay. Word for marrieds. Let me just move on and talk about a word for those who are single. Uh, some of us here who are single will stay single. Some uh, who are single will, will get married. Um, it covers us all, I think. Uh, 1 Peter 3 is not an encouragement to believers to marry unbelievers so that you can commend the gospel to them. That's not what's going on here. I suspect the context is one in which uh, people were married and then in this first century situation, uh, the spouse got converted and had to wrestle with the issue of being in that married sort of context. However, can I say, those who are married to unbelievers, uh, they will tell you that that's a real challenge. Uh, It is hard to be married to someone who doesn't share the most important thing in life with you. And if that's your situation, let me say, we as a community want to support you in being faithful and honouring God and loving uh, your spouse in this space. That's, that's where we stand. If you are planning to get married, though, and you're single, this part of the Bible says an enormous amount about what to look for in a potential partner. Uh, inner beauty or character over skin-deep looks. And that applies, I think, to both men and to women. It is extraordinarily shallow to value looks over godliness and character. Very shallow. I'm not saying it's irrelevant, right? Uh, You know, I'm not encouraging everyone to never brush their teeth or their hair or wear shabby clothes and look as ugly as you possibly can. I'm not advocating that. But the thing to treasure most in a partner is that they fear and love the Lord. And that's what you should be looking for. From that point of view, let me say, as a church, we do not commodify women or men. We don't commodify women or men. This is a place where we respect and love, uh, and therefore we, we treat men and women the same way. Respect and love, not commodify. A final word about, or for those who are in any relationship, as I said, this, this um, passage does talk about marriage, but it's illustrating a bigger point. Uh, how do you commend the gospel to those who don't yet believe? And this applies, I think, to any close relationship. As I said, I, I became a Christian when I was 20 years old. And what I did was I immediately went home, well, not immediately, pretty soon afterwards, went home and explained to my 55-year-old parents what they'd gotten you know, the main purpose of their life wrong for the last 55 years. And they, they responded incredibly warmly to this sage advice from their son who was studying at university that they were still financially supporting. Right? They thought it was just terrific. Right? Now, can I say, looking back, I wish I'd 
used a few less words and done a little more washing of the dishes, mowing of the lawns and making of the beds. Uh, I think that would have been more helpful, actually. Now, they, they recovered uh, from my early preaching efforts. They, uh, they, they observed changes in my life. They did, they did warm to the gospel. You know, maybe you're here today and you've got children uh, that you've been longing uh, to come back to the Lord and you're just, uh, just heart-struck by the fact that they're not in that situation right now. Can I encourage you as uh, parents in that sort of situation just to maintain gospel integrity? Uh, that is, you may not be able to get the gospel on the agenda. You've tried it lots of times and you get rebuffed all the time. That may just be the case. Uh, but just work incredibly hard at how you love your children and keep praying that God in his kindness will bring them back to himself. Your kids may not believe, but what you want them to be able to say is that they could never have wanted for more loving parents who cared for them. It's the same actually in any long-standing friendship. Uh, maybe you've had Jesus on the agenda and it's just been, you know, pushed back at you, pushed to one side, and you're now in that deflection situation. Where do you go in those relationships? Keep working at uh, faithfulness in your friendships. I remember one of our kids at their um, wedding reception and we had some friends from, that we'd known throughout the school years. They knew exactly where we stood with the gospel uh, but we hadn't been able to make progress. And I was sitting on a table with some Christian friends. And these uh, school friends, they said to our Christian friends, you know, we really love uh, Sue and Paul and the Harringtons. We love their values. We love the way they do life. You know, it's just, you know we really do like those aspects of who they are. And our, our Christian friends on the table said, because you know, they're not just good living people. You know what makes them tick? It's uh, the fact that God has shown them mercy and grace and kindness and they want to be displaying that to other people. And that's a great gospel conversation. You may not have had anyone come up to you lately and, and said to you, I can see by your impressive life that you must be a Christian. Please tell me how I may become one. It's unlikely that it's happened to you lately. But can I say, do not underestimate the power of godly living to provoke questions. Let me just finish with that uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans, among unbelievers, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let me pray for us and I'll uh, hand back to Joe, I think. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your extraordinary kindness to us and your son. Father, we, uh, we've just looked at a passage that has lots of different challenging ideas, especially for our particular context. And yet, Father, we pray that our vision will just be preoccupied with who you are and your purposes for us and your world and all our relationships, including marriage. And Father, we pray that the grace of your gospel will just infuse our lives in every respect. And we ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.